Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft, coming out in May 2010. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, our show is about all sorts of exciting privacy issues from one of the greatest publishers around and a guy that I've met, gee, you know, I think 15 years ago, and and it's all about privacy from the publisher of Privacy Journal. And we are going to be speaking with Robert Ellis Smith, who's been on our show every year since we started. This is five years already. And we're excited to have him back because he always updates us with the newest and most important issues with regard to privacy. So if you haven't heard him before, you're going to just love him. But let me tell you a little bit about his background. Robert Ellis Smith, is a journalist who uses his training as an attorney to report on the individual's right to privacy. Since 1974, he's published Privacy Journal, a monthly newsletter on privacy in the computer age based in Providence, Rhode Island. Gorgeous place. And I happen to get that journal for, gee, 10 years now. Uh, Robert is a frequent speaker and writer, and he's actually also a congressional witness on privacy issues And he's compiled a clearinghouse of information on subjects, including such things as computer data, um, financial privacy, credit and medical records, the Internet, electronic surveillance, the law of privacy, and physical and even psychological privacy. He is also the author of several books, including Benjamin Franklin's website, Privacy and Curiosity from Plymouth Rock to the Internet, That's the first and only published history of privacy in the United States. We're going to talk a little bit about that. And he's also the author of Our Vanishing Privacy, The Privacy um, Law of Privacy Explained, and Privacy, How to Protect What's Left of It, Work Rights, and a book describing individual rights in the workplace, and also The Big Brother of Lists. Privacy Journal also publishes the compilation of state and federal privacy laws, celebrity and privacy, and war stories, a collection of anecdotes on privacy invasions. And I have several of his books, and I, of course, get the journal. It's wonderful. And the New York Times says about Robert, they say this, sounds the alarm about maintaining freedom and privacy in the computer age. And they called him a principled critic. Privacy Journal is a privacy watchdog, according to Time Magazine. So we're so thrilled to have him with us. Thank you so much, Bob, for joining us all the way from Providence, Rhode Island. Yes, how are you? It's good to join you again. Oh, Robert, terrific. You know, you've been publishing now for 35 years. How is it that you became interested in doing this so and being involved in privacy so early on? It was outrage. <laughs> I was outraged by, first of all, the use of uh, lie detector machines, which I had read enough to know were not good technology. They were fraudulent. They didn't tell the truth. And I was outraged that credit records were so inaccurate. Uh, here I was, a journalist, and I was used to checking out information before I ever circulated it about somebody. And I was just outraged that credit bureaus didn't do that. And thirdly, that we didn't have access to our own credit reports to correct them and make sure that they were uh, accurate in every way. And uh, people were really suffering because of that. So. 
that's what really got me into this. And I also thought that advocates, people like yourself, needed raw materials, needed information so that they could sharpen their advocacy. And I've, I've tried over those years to provide these raw materials to people in the, in the field. Well, I always look forward to receiving my newsletter every month. So tell me, what are some of the most important privacy or the most significant privacy changes that you've seen through those 35 years that you've been documenting them? Well, when I started, the big emphasis was on huge databases, uh, CPUs, uh, computer, what do they call them, central power units? Well, I've even forgotten. Yeah. But um, that was the emphasis, that these huge databases would have all sorts of information about us and then talk behind our backs and possibly get linked. And Of course, that has happened. A lot of these data systems have been linked. But then along came personal computers where the uh, computer power was in the hands of individuals more than the institutions. And then came laptops, which allowed for this data to be portable, and that's caused an awful lot of problems. In in one way, I suppose it's good that the power has been diffused, but um, it's not good that people can transfer masses of uh, personal data onto to laptops and move it around town and lose it, as quite often they, they've been doing. I did not anticipate the Internet. I did not anticipate email, and I certainly didn't anticipate that people would be willing to uh, give up all sorts of personal information uh, when they search for information on the Internet or when they get an email service or, or when they uh, um, just go to a website, that that information would be uh, captured about them and that advertising would be tailored towards them in accord with their search choices and what websites they go to. So I guess the reason I have not gotten bored over these 35 years is that the technology keeps changing and providing new challenges and threats to privacy. And your journal becomes more and more important, absolutely. And did you ever anticipate there'd be body scans where you could see your naked body as you go through the airport? <laughs> well, we had x-ray technology. This is a form of that, and yeah. I guess I knew that that technology existed. But to see it used outside of a medical context is a huge shock, yes. To see it in a public uh, space and to see so many people willing to accept it without ever questioning the technology or the appropriateness of that, yes, that's a huge shock. <laughs> You know, you've been ranking states for for a long time uh, about how well they protect against invasion of privacy, and I, I've been so proud because California is always up there. So why don't you tell my audience who are listening from other states as well, what are the top 10 states in the country that protect individual privacy? California is certainly ahead of the pack because of their uh, progressive legislation, and uh, through most of those years, a Supreme Court that was very... Uh, friendly towards privacy, very sensitive to it, very understanding of it. Minnesota is very, very close. They're, they're clearly in second now. They were tied for a while there. They have a, a, actually a longer tradition of both privacy and freedom of information. Uh, we think that Connecticut, Florida, Hawaii, Illinois, Massachusetts, New York, Washington State, and Wisconsin are in the top ten along with Minnesota and California. And that's because they cover in their laws or their court decisions, the uh, main areas that people are sensitive about, whether it's credit reporting, that's mainly a federal law, but state laws do uh, supplement those, those federal laws. Uh, these states have laws uh, on library records, protecting those, on uh, security breaches. As you know, California was the very first state to require that a company report publicly that they uh, ha had personal information stolen. And uh, that made, has made a huge difference, and most states have followed suit now. Uh, so we try to measure uh, each time uh, we, when we publish our collection of state laws, which legislatures have been busy and doing the right thing and being progressive on privacy, and which states have uh, court decisions that are also very helpful to, to uh, consumers. You know, California was also the very first state to have a California Office of Privacy Protection and uh, Wisconsin followed suit. I wondered if you knew if there were any other states that were considering having an Office of Privacy Protection. Well, I think since the last time we talked, Hawaii has sort of closed theirs down, unfortunately. Oh. Uh, Minnesota has had one actually since the day that Privacy Journal began back in 1974. Huh. It, it is mainly concerned with uh, state agencies and local governments, but trying to keep them in line and, and uh, guide them in compliance with Minnesota's uh, privacy law. Uh, it, it, no state but California really has sort of an ombudsman, somebody who
who is available to uh, answer questions and to guide people uh, to the right agency when they suffer from either identity fraud or inaccurate credit reports or abuses at work uh, or um, an inability to get at their medical records. That's a federal requirement now that patients have a right to see their own medical records. That was that was not always true in this in this field. And uh, people need guidance. They need to know that these laws exist and, and what agency can help them out. I know. I, I feel very proud that our, our state of California has really uh, taken a lead, and we continue to, to do this. Luckily, we've got some senators that are really great, like our Senator Joe Simidian, who has done so much. He, he's the one who actually, along with Senator Peace, who put together the first security breach legislation. So we are, we're out there, but there's you know, a lot more to do. Talking. There have been some good state senators and assembly members uh, who have been good on this issue in California. Absolutely. You know, we've talked before about information brokers, and we and you you mentioned them just earlier about how information is in these big databases is bought and sold, et cetera. So, um, so much information is gathered about us that a lot of people don't even realize how much is being gathered about us covertly and overtly, and it's not very transparent, actually, most of the time. On your website, privacyjournal.net, you've listed six ethical principles for information brokers. I think they were great. Why don't you share those with us? Sure, I'd be happy to. The the first thing to know about information brokers is that the largest one is called uh, uh, ChoicePoint, and it's a a spinoff from the credit bureau Equifax, about which most people have heard. And, the, and, and now they're owned by LexisNexis, which uh, is even right. bigger, right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, they gather not credit information, but information about people's employment and their living conditions, their neighborhoods, uh, their uh, brushes with the law, arrest records if they have any, and sell them uh, not only to employers but to the federal government and to the security agencies and, and the like. They've made a pile of money on the threats since uh, September 11, 2001. No company has probably profited more from our misery than, than ChoicePoint. Um, but they're not very typical because most information brokers are small mom-and-pop operations who sometimes they buy information from credit bureaus and they resell it, and uh, a lot of them have websites where people anonymously can pay 25 bucks and find out information from others. And uh, Although I believe it's pretty clear that the Fair Credit Reporting Act covers these information brokers, uh, they don't act that way, and they're always resisting it. And so... I think uh, people ought to be aware of their existence and, and, and challenge them at every point to try to see their own records. And We, we say essentially that an information broker should have an obligation of, of accuracy if they're going to gather information about strangers, and that would seem to be uh, rather uh, 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 elementary. And We think they should devote an appropriate percentage of their resources to uh, uh, cleaning up their accuracy and also training employees. Uh, we think that they uh, ought to have an information privacy officer who's available to people so that you can uh, know that there's a focal point where you can go if you've got an inaccurate record or something uh, uh, like that. Um, we, we think that uh, they should shun any information that's gathered by illicit means. There are plenty of information brokers that collect information by either private detectives or by individuals or by others who are uh, not abiding by the law, and we think that they ought not to uh, collect that information and uh, and resell it. And we think they ought to be transparent. We, they should tell the public on their website exactly what information they collect and uh, what they do with it, where they get it from, and uh, what's the purpose uh, for the information. And and we think that they should not exploit uh, uh, fear of terrorism to uh, to hustle up new contracts in the government, and there's all too much of that. Exactly. And I just want to mention here, when you're talking about ChoicePoint, um, they were really the first publicly reported security breach back in 2005. And the one good thing that happened as a result of that is that the Federal Trade Commission has been really watching over their shoulders. So they've had to clean up their act of, of all the information brokers. They're probably the most legitimate one now out there. And by the way, you who are listening, you can actually get free disclosures from ChoicePoint if you go to choicetrust.com, and then there is a you can look at what they call the FACTA disclosures. Under the Fair and Accurate Credit Transaction Act, you can get 
several things for free. You can get your free employment history. You can get your free clue report, which is your insurance history. And you can get your work history. And they even have something else that you can get that they aren't required to do, but that's your public rest record history for free. So go to choicetrust.com and you can get those for free. And that's part of um, some of the changes that have been made. And obviously because of some of the wonderful uh, exposure that, that uh, Robert Ellis Smith has, has made available through the Privacy Journal. We are yeah, I'd like to un- yeah. underline what you said. Here was a nationwide company that really was forced to disclose a security breach because of a law in California. And I think at the time it was the only one on the books. Exactly. Uh, you mentioned the Federal Trade Commission uh, uh, sanctioning uh, uh, this company, Choice Point, for not abiding by federal law. Unfortunately, that's happened twice now since then, uh, so that for the third time in that short period, the federal government has declared that Choice Point is not adequately complying with federal law. Right. I, I do think they're doing better than some of the others, though, from, from my experience. So, they're, you know, they're not great, and they should be adhering to the principles that you have on your website. There's no question about it. Uh, so, yeah, they. I think a lot um, of challenges came about when they were bought out by LexisNexis because LexisNexis also was a competitor of ChoicePoint. And so I think LexisNexis has, um, has not stepped up to the plate as much as choice point but be that as it may we're hoping at least for people to get, you know make sure they get those free disclosures and that'll that'll be helpful because they can dispute those disclosures so if there's anything inaccurate about your work history or about your insurance history which you know bob there was something on mine that was inaccurate it said that i had a property loss which could have cost me a lot of money in selling my house and it was really when my husband lost his his uh, wedding ring <laughs> So um, I corrected that. So it's important that you get your free disclosures and see if there's any errors and dispute it and make sure it's correct because it could hurt you in the future if you don't. Right. Absolutely. We're, we're speaking right now with Robert Ellis Smith, who comes to us all the way from beautiful Providence, Rhode Island. He is the publisher of Privacy Journal. He's been publishing it for 35 years. He is a wonderful privacy expert. Uh, he serves as an expert witness for Congress and uh, in cases. He's a lawyer. He's an author. Uh, I just think he's wonderful. He walks on water. And you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM and Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. And you're also listening to Privacy Piracy, and I'm the host, Mari Frank. So back to Bob. Bob, you know, we have a lot of business people driving by as well as the students that are on campus that are listening. And so that everybody seems to be interested in the business world. And I, I know you have had uh, quite a bit of interest in video monitoring at work and the fairness about that. Will you share with us some of the guidelines that you think should occur with regard to fairness and video monitoring at work? Sure. I think two things mainly. Full disclosure to everybody involved so that they know uh, that the surveillance is taking place and the reason for it. And secondly, um, a, a hard scrutiny of the technology. I think a lot of employers might well find that they'd be better off, have more secure workplaces without the cameras, with individuals who are, uh, have a stake in the company. You know, all the studies show when, when the boss or the boss's representative is working alongside the people, then pilfering and, and malingering uh, really is reduced to a, to a bare minimum. So you're not, you can't be sure that a bunch of videotapes are, are going to, uh, help you have a more secure um, uh, workplace. If there is a reason for monitoring, you think that there has been pilfering or drug use or something of that sort in the workplace, then I think employers uh, should be obligated to articulate that, to say why they think they need camera surveillance. And then when that reason disappears, I think the cameras should disappear. I think that uh, anybody who's uh, caught on the cameras ought to have a right to take a look. I think that the tapes ought to be erased if there's no... Uh, uh, illicit behavior uh, shown on them after a reasonable amount of time. I think that uh, there ought to be strict guidelines for the individuals who monitor the cameras and monitor the tapes to make sure we don't have uh, men who are idly oogling women uh, and that sort of thing because a lot of the surveillance takes place in changing rooms and, and, and bathrooms. And with reasonable precautions, I think that we can reduce a lot of the camera surveillance, make it effective, and not offend our employees uh, and thereby lower their morale. Right. 
And transparency is so important. People need to know, like you said, they need to know why, what is the need for it and that it's happening, you know. And um, I, I think that's really important as I think of a lot of people with all the technology we have and all the little tiny, tiny video cameras that we have, people can really be offended and be videotaped without their knowledge. You know, Bob, there are a lot of critical issues with regard to public records and open records. You know, as a privacy advocate, I know we all believe that we should have open records, but at the same time, we have to reconcile uh, some privacy as well. So how is it possible to reconcile the legal mandate for open disclosure, which, you know, we value, and um, how do we reconcile with that for the demand for personal privacy? Well, here's an area where there is a technology fix, uh, where the f- technology can be used to enhance privacy and not and not to diminish it. Uh, so many uh, government employees think that the, these two values are in, irreconcilable, and, and they're not. Even though there is a legal mandate to release the information, and for very good reasons, so that government will be accountable, uh, people can be notified at the same time if that information is to be re- released. And those people who are depicted in the files can then uh, take precautions. I mean, the, these, this comes up a lot with court records. There's a lot of sensitive stuff in family court and in civil court, and, and not only in transcripts of cases, but just in the filings of, of the documents in a court case. And even though that information is public and must be disclosed, uh, there are a couple of things that can take place. One is that uh, the disclosure disclosure can notify people that this is coming. And secondly, uh, there are three things, actually. The second thing is they can have less personal information introduced in the first place, and many courts are doing that now, where they have done away with the requirement to provide a Social Security number. And then uh, the, there is technology now that will uh, redact or edit out or delete a lot of the personal sensitive information, so that now more and more when attorneys are filing these papers electronically, they simply code information that is very sensitive so that later when it comes time to disclose it under law, uh, the personal information is deleted. And Freedom of Information Acts throughout the country have always had an exemption in them that says that information that invades people's personal privacy need not be disclosed. And this redacting technology simply uh, 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 complies with that requirement uh, in a a technological way. So you don't even have to have uh, human hands touch the documents when, when they must be released under uh, open records laws. You know, I, I wanted to add a couple of things about that. You know, we have some laws in California that you cannot put the Social Security number in open public records when you're filing it with a case. You you are to redact that. So if you violate that, you can be sued as an attorney for violating that as well, which is, I think, very good. Good rule. And, you know, I have this case going on right now, which you will get a kick out of because it is a real dilemma. I have a victim from uh, the Midwest, a victim of identity theft, who called me, who found out that there was a default judgment against him in California for for uh, credit that his imposter had gotten. And there was, you know, they, they apparently served the imposter at the imposter's residence in California, which my client never lived in California. And they, um, so th- there was this a judgment on there, and he had learned about it on his credit report back in 2002. He had written to the court. He finally got everything off of his credit report, and then lo and behold, just this past December, he was served in his home in the Midwest um, by for, for like a renewal of this judgment. So... He didn't know what to do, and he called the, the law firm, and they said, there's nothing you can do. You know, you're, you're, they, they wouldn't tell him what to do. So he ended up calling me. Long story short, I notified the, uh, the law firm that they had to set aside the judgment, and I wanted them to void the first judgment. And so they're agreeing to do that. But meanwhile, I called the, the court clerk just uh, yesterday, and I said to the court clerk, you know, I would like to know, is there any way that we can find out who were all the people that or the entities that got information about these fraudulent judgments? And um, she said, I said, is there an audit trail? Is there something? Because I want to ask the firm to notify them all of the that this was fraud. And uh, she said, there's absolutely no way. There's at we, she said, 
there may be myriad people that had done this. There's no way for you to do that. So right now I'm considering, uh, you know, besides setting aside the judgment and vacating the judgment so that this isn't seen, but this gentleman is, you know, a very important person with a very good job in the financial industry, and I don't want this to bite him later if something else happens and it comes up on some kind of a background check or, or something that they find this, you know. So I'm thinking of, you know, asking the court to do many things, including sealing the records because I don't even want them to appear anywhere. But it's, it's a real problem because once you have a fraudulent judgment, whether it be a criminal judgment, which would be worse, or a civil judgment, it's already been out there to so many different people and you can't pull it back and then it's replicated and replicated. We have no idea when this is going to rear its ugly head again. Yeah, that's true. I, I, I think you'll find in Arizona there is a requirement of an audit trail with these records. And as you pointed out, that's the only way you can get the inaccuracy uh, cleared up. I think it's a reasonable request. I think you'll probably see it in California in about five years. Uh, that may not help you now, but uh, right. that's, that's, that's a basic re- requirement. Uh, anybody disclosing personal information ought to keep a trail as to who got the information. Right. Uh, I mean, and, 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 of course, on the Internet, we can't do that because right. so many uh, links to uh, one site and another that when information uh, is uh, sent around the Internet, we don't have that audit trail and are not able to track down inaccuracies. The same with email. When we send an email to a friend and that friend sends it on to 30 friends, uh, we've lost track of it then. There's no longer a trail where if the information is inaccurate, we can uh, we can catch up with it. But uh, when institutions disclose information like a court system, an audit trail ought to be basic. And you know what she told me, the clerk explained, and this was the head of the clerk's office, the administrator, and she said, you know, everything's on the internet now because they put all these judgments up on the internet. So she said, it's already on the internet, so we have no idea who had access. There's just no way to rein it in. So, you know, we have to put our heads together about that. You know, how are we going to make this work for people who are victims of a criminal judgment, you know, victims of fraud of a criminal judgment, which I've already been through with many, many people. It's been hard. Or a civil judgment that could really ruin their entire career. So it's it's a rough one. It's I think we're going to see more and more of those kinds of problems, especially with the identity theft that is just so rampant. So you've been on your website, you also list a whole bunch of really important suggestions for protecting privacy. Can you share some of those with my audience? Sure. I I happen to think they might well be out of date, and I would very much appreciate your listeners going to the site and then provide there's a place there where you can provide your own tips. I'm sure many people have more experience now in, in recent years uh, than I have, but the, the elementary one ought to be, uh, uh, as you well know, uh, keep your social security number to, you, to yourself. Every time it's asked for, it doesn't, it does not mean that you have to give it or that it's a legitimate request. When you're applying for credit or even when you're calling in to, uh, say, uh, uh, activate a credit card, you don't have to give your social security number even, even though it's asked for. And you should never use it over the telephone to verify your identity. There are many other means uh, for doing that, other information about yourself or have the company uh, call you back on the telephone. Uh, it, it, you'll notice uh, you can even get a password on the Internet if you forget your password. How does that happen? It's merely emailed back to your email, uh, email address on the assumption that nobody else has access to it. So you wouldn't give a Social Security number on, over the Internet to get your, you get your password. And that's true of other personal information about yourself. You always want to ask who wants it and what's going to be done with it. And one thing you can do perhaps is uh, maybe as a fallback position is to attach conditions to the information. I have many times in mortgage applications put an expiration date uh, on uh, the information or I put in a condition that it can't be disclosed uh, be beyond the lender. Uh, those things uh, will be accepted and, and they, uh, they can, can work. Uh, I also suggest that people very, be very cautious in the marketplace. I suggest two of everything. When you, when you are asked for a phone number uh, publicly for, for credit purposes or on an application, have a public phone number, maybe your landline phone that you use. Uh, a second phone number is very, very inexpensive. And then uh, you save your uh, uh, cell phone number or your personal phone number for, for your very close friends. And then if you get distinctive ringing also, which is not expensive, you will know when people call whether they're friend or whether they're commercial caller. 
I, I like to have two addresses, use a box number for all the commercial stuff. That's what's going to generate the uh, unwanted uh, commercial mail. So you let the Postal Service do your sorting for you and keep your uh, street address to yourself for your personal mail. Um, and get on the do not call list as well. Uh, yes, that's elementary, and I believe it's on my list. But uh, you should call from the phone that you want to protect and simply dial the 800 number uh, to the Federal Trade Commission and just follow the directions, and you can get on that call, do not call list within a few seconds. And it has been the most effective privacy protector, I think, in the last 30 years. Exactly, and you can even put your cell phone on there so that you can get your cell phone as a do not call as well. Right, and you should check your credit report regularly. It'll depend. The frequency will depend on individuals, how active they've been, but do check your credit report. Get a free credit report. Make sure you go to the government free credit uh, website, not to the commercial ones that have ads on TV. And that's annualcreditreport.com. Okay, right. not so freecreditreport.com, which they're going to start charging you after 30 days. It's right. annualcreditreport.com, so I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah, and if you forget that, I urge you to go to ftc.gov and go to that website through their link, and then that'll be that'll be safe for you. But there's no need for you to pay for a credit report. It is now free. Um, as to whether you get these other services that claim to protect you from identity theft or to track your credit uh, report, uh, I'll leave that to people whether they want to fly first class or or go coach. Most of the all of that you can do for yourself without without charge. Okay. So also on your website. And I want to give that website again, privacyjournal.net. Um, you talk about policy and organizations. What should be included in a code of fair information practices for organizations? We have a lot of businesses driving by. We're on the university campus, the University of California. So let's talk about the code of fair information practice for organizations. Yes, this has been around now since the 1970s, and it's achieved uh, general recognition and support from most business groups. It's part of many of the privacy laws we have in the United States and all of the privacy laws that exist in uh, in Europe. And what we're talking about essentially is openness and transparency, that um, all record systems ought to be announced and, and the type of information they gather should be publicly announced, that um, the custodian, the person to go to, is publicly announced so that people have a ombudsman, somebody they can go to if they need to. There must be a way for an individual to find out what information is stored in the database and uh, and what's done with it, and then a, a means to uh, see the information and to correct it. That is really key. There are, have been some additional uh, additions to that in the years since this was first devised, and one of them is that I like the, the uh, uh, principle of, of uh, proportionality that uh, organizations ought to gather information that's proportional to what they need it for. You know, it's just silly to gather all sorts of personal information about people if all you want to do is give them access to information that's public anyway. Uh, and there's an awful lot of that going on. I, I think there ought to be uh, uh, allowances, resources for training in organizations. Quite often, organizations simply proclaim that they're four square in front of privacy, but they don't either have a written policy or they don't train their uh, people about it. The most effective government agencies and companies in privacy are those where the employees know that there's a tradition of privacy in in the organization, and it's drummed into them regularly, and there's a proud history of uh, of uh, confidentiality. And while we're in the season of the census, I would say that I think that agency, the Bureau of the Census, has done that more than any other government agency, federal or state, to drum into their employees a respect for confidentiality. Um, and all organizations can do that. They just have to keep at it. I know I went to visit a hospital in Massachusetts not long ago, and there in the elevator were little placards uh, warning everybody not to talk about patient conditions in the elevator or in the hallways. And I, I was very impressed with that. I think that's that's the way you've got to do it. Oh, that's great, because you always do hear things like that. <laughs> you do. And, you know, the hospitals are absolutely the worst, I think. Even though they're supposed to be the best, you, you hear people talking about what's going on with the patient, and it's uh, it's totally unacceptable. So, you know, I, I wanted you to tell a little bit about your, your book, Ben Franklin's website, Privacy and Curiosity from Plymouth Rock to the Internet. Yeah, maybe I should explain the title first. <laughs> yes, I think you should. It's fun. It's fun. <laughs> it, is a, it is an account of, of privacy in American history. 
since the beginning, the, how, how the colonies viewed privacy, how the early government did, how our founders viewed privacy, well, what people's views towards confidentiality and telephone service were at the turn of the century, how people viewed each other uh, in the uh, Civil War period, how they built their homes, how they uh, uh, had uh, their neighborhoods, whether they were more interested in privacy or curiosity. And it gives people context for understanding uh, the situation we're in now in, in this current decade. I thought, uh, first of all, Ben Franklin was offended in the colonial period when there were so-called watchers in the towns who who went through the streets and, and looked into windows and under eaves uh, and uh, uh, tried to keep an account of everybody. Sometimes the church would sponsor it, sometimes the municipality. He thought they should be regulated because he thought they were spreading a lot of uh, inaccurate gossip about people and actually taking bribes to, to not report things about people. And he uh, said he was really pleased that that was finally straightened out by some decent laws that regulated them. And as most people know, he was the first postmaster general of the United States. And in that system, he did exactly what I was talking about earlier. He built a tradition of respect for confidentiality. You know, people may, may not realize before we had a postal system, people would leave their messages at a tavern and and whoever was going that way would grab it and take it to the to the proper recipient or leave it in another tavern, actually, where the recipient would pick it up. And there was a, uh, 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 more and more a system for sealing letters with wax or with adhesive. But there was an awful lot of trust built into that system. And uh, Ben Franklin, as postmaster, made sure that there was a respect for sealed mail, that it ought not to be opened by the government or by or by strangers. And uh, just parenthetically, I thought he was our first rock hero. I, I said <laughs> the book that uh, if there were action figures back then, there would have been one of Ben Franklin because he was probably the most famous American of his time, very famous in, in England as well, which was very, very rare during that period, remember, when we didn't have television, we didn't have tabloids or, or even the Internet. So uh, uh, he knew what it was like to be famous and recognized, and he faced some of those irritations and had to take and precautions himself to protect himself from crowds in the street. Right. He was a Renaissance man, and he liked Everywhere. to party. <laughs> he, he was. I said he was a Renaissance man. He was an inventor, and he, uh, you know, he also had a good time. I mean, that's. I mean, that's his reputation for knowing how to party and knowing how to be wonderful with the ladies. And uh, he was. He was. Uh, he. He probably needed those privacy laws as well. Yes. Right. <laughs> Yeah, all of those reasons. Uh, and he was one of America's first and foremost publishers, too. So. Exactly, exactly. Well, you know, you and I and many others in, in the field of privacy have very strong feelings about the National ID Card. In fact, you wrote a book called A National ID Card, A License to Live. Uh, tell us about some of the arguments for and against the National ID Card, because that's still out there, isn't it? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Only it's being... Uh, pushed forward in very tiny little steps on with tiny little bureaucratic decisions that we've never had a role in. I don't think there's ever been a national debate on this as to whether it would be an improvement or not. And certainly since 2001, there have been more uh, pushes towards that direction of having a national ID card. I think it's essentially un-American. I think that it would limit the autonomy and the freedom that people have in, in the public streets. It would remove a lot of the spontaneity of life. Just imagine if you had to make sure your kids had a little piece of plastic before they went out to play, or you had to run around and find your plastic uh, before you went out to jog or walk in the park. Um, I, I just think it, it removes a lot of that freedom that we cherish so much in the United States. And uh, When you think about the value of it, it's very, very limited because it's an all-purpose card. It's a card that everybody would be required to uh, carry, uh, and we would use it for airplanes, and we'd use it for people on the street, and we use it for getting into employment, and probably use it to verify our credit card transactions. But that's the fault of it. These ID cards work okay for a specific purpose, like getting into your place of employment. But they certainly don't work in an all-purpose way, and they also give much too much authority to police officers to demand that you have your papers in order, even when you're uh, totally obeying the law and, and doing innocent things. Uh, I think the only value of it might be uh, in uh, challenging people who have children uh, who may not be their own, who may be uh, kidnapping them or walking off with them. 
but when you think of the percentage of the population that that applies to, it's, of course, minuscule. But that's the only value I can see of it. It's not going to keep terrorists off airplanes, that's for sure. And uh, it's not going to give us a list of all the good guys and all the bad guys because we should know from the beginning that there's no such thing as a, a card that can't be counterfeited. There'll be a huge market in these counterfeit cards. There'll be people will be at the mercy of thieves who want to steal our ID cards so that they can get around in our society. Uh, I I just hope we avoid it. We should tighten up the driver's license. We should increase the um, identity that's needed in order to get a driver's license. I think and make it. Uh, a, something that people have to renew in person, I think, regularly, uh, perhaps a little more frequently. But I, I just dislike the trend towards both the national ID card and the idea that that's going to solve all of our problems. Well, Robert, what, what about this? If, if you have um, a driver's license in each state and they get this information about you, and you have to show that to get an, on an airplane, um, how do you feel about the driver's license databases being linked from from all the states. In other words, if, if you're in Rhode Island and I'm in California, um, that if if um, if you were here, they they could link your what your uh, the website of your driver's license in the websites of all the different driver's license. Would that in effect be a national ID? No, I think it would be quite different. It depends. A national ID would require some document that you had to present upon demand on the street, but. Um, you know, in the Reagan years, it was proposed that the state driver's license systems be linked, and there's a certain logic to that. Yeah. First thing we got to do is we've got to prove that we can use those uh, effectively. But there was an attempt that some states actually were linked through the federal government so that if your license was revoked in one state, you couldn't go across the state line and get get a license in another state. Right. That's elementary. We should be checking that. We really okay. should. Okay. And, uh, until we can do that and use these databases effectively, I think to do the next step doesn't make much sense. Uh, I, I'm not a big believer in databases. I think it's the dragnet approach to security. It's it's uh, a belief that if we have enough names and enough systems somehow, we can find the bad guys, and I don't think that's the way it works. Let's, let's try to get some databases that actually work, um, and we saw, I think, with the threat on the airplane on Christmas Day that... Uh, we, we didn't effectively there use information that we had that should have denied that person access to an airplane. And again, that whole thing, again, makes me nuts, too, because I don't understand why we can't follow the, the, uh, the intelligence that they use in Israel, you know, for they have a psychological profiling Instead of racial profiling, they have psychological profiling. You know, they ask you questions, and then if you don't answer the questions in a certain way, then they can, you know, ask you some more questions or move you to the next level. That, to me, seems like a much better way to go than to just, you know, try and rely on these watch lists that are just overwhelmed, and then they miss things that are important, like what happened over Christmas. Yeah, totally. Uh you know, and the difference is in Israel, they're serious about it. They really want to protect airplanes and protect their borders. And here, I'm afraid we're not. I, I, I'm afraid that we just respond to vendors who want to sell us a bill of goods. I mean, the uh, airport security people paid a whole lot of money for puffing machines that were supposed to puff some air in people's faces and detect explosives, and, and uh, they were a flop. I think maybe this, this, these scanners are going to be flops, too. Uh, we, we are just put too much faith in these technological fixes that the vendors are selling us all the time. And, uh, yeah, and they're going to be able to find theater a way. Is what yeah. It is. yeah, and they're going to be able to find a way to hide something if they want to. It's crazy. Let's switch gears and go over to Google. But I, I, I should introduce you again if anybody's driving by and they just tuned in. We are speaking with Robert Ellis Smith, who is the publisher of Privacy Journal, which is a fantastic independent monthly newsletter that I get. It's on privacy in the computer age. And you can learn more about Privacy Journal at privacyjournal.net. Bob is a uh, an attorney, and he's a writer and a speaker and an author and a congressional witness, and he's my friend, and he's terrific. And uh, so we are talking to him about various aspects of privacy. So let's switch to Google. Tell us about your, con- your concerns with what's going on with Google. 
Well, there are a lot, and uh, some of them are shared more enthusiastically by some of the other people in the privacy business. But uh, uh, it is a company that was founded by a couple of young men, hotshots, who really didn't build into the company uh, any effort and any resources to cover some of these social issues that people are very concerned about. Um, they give short, short shrift to privacy because they really don't know, they don't get it, uh, and, uh, and so that their big concerns are just trying to build more and more technology. In short, here are some of the problems. Google keeps track of all your searches. So when you search for something on Google, that's going to be maintained by the company, I think, for 18 months now. And it's not clear when they will cooperate with the government in providing that information and when they will. And it's not clear when they will use that for commercial purposes and, and when not. Most of the commercial purposes, I think, will be cumulative. They won't identify people. Well, none of this will identify people, but it will just identify the computer that you're using. The, the next one is uh, Gmail, which is a free mail service that they provide. But uh, part of the deal is that people agree to is that uh, Google will be able to snoop into that and actually uh, tailor make advertising to you based on the content of, of your electronic mail. And another product is Street View, that many people probably are familiar with. This goes one step beyond their uh, map uh, service. This is a, a photograph, a still photograph of um, your house. And which you can be uh, searched, um, not the house, but the picture can be searched online. I don't see any social utility for the product. Some people tell me, you know, before they go to a neighborhood for a social occasion, they can look it up and take a look at what it's like. But you could do that without with pictures of the neighborhood and not pictures of individual houses. Now, Google tells you that they will remove anybody's image of a house that, who doesn't want it up there, and took me a while. I got that done. So uh, that can be done, and I would urge people to do it. Um, once again, if there's no great social utility for the product and it has a high possibility of privacy invasion, I, I don't know why a company uh, would pursue it. Um, the president CEO of, of Google, who's not one of the young Turks but a more mature gentleman, uh, said that um, if you want to protect the privacy of some things in your life, perhaps you shouldn't be doing them. Yeah. <laughs> well, that is a real short-sighted view of things. Right. One, when one searches for cures or treatments for cancer in one's family, uh, that's not something that you did wrong and ought not to be doing. That's something that has occurred to you in your life. And uh, the same is true of so many other things where you go online to search things it's not because of you're trying to hide things that you did wrong. It's because you're trying to hide things that have happened in your family that you're sensitive about, and that's perfectly legitimate. And people, the great value of the Internet is people can search anonymously and privately for solutions to the particular problems they have, whether it's alcoholism or drug abuse or family uh, dysfunction or various medical conditions. And I hope we can preserve that, that people don't feel that, if they search online for information that they need along those lines, uh, there's going to be a record kept of it. So that's a very naive view of privacy. Uh, and not only that, Robert, what if you do? What if there's no alcoholism in your family, but you're doing a report on it for school? That's an excellent point. You know, we, I mean, we, and, we, and then I you're going to be. I do. I, I yeah. Google for information for others, not for myself. Or sure, I, I do that. To write my, about it, absolutely. And I do that for my clients. I look up things, uh, criminal stuff. I mean, I look up stuff all the time that has nothing to do with my own life. That that I could be profiled. That that's what I'm looking for. Right. And and it has nothing to do with me. It's, so it's, it's funny when when we first had the internet and the search capability, we we would tell people. Don't use the computer at the library. Use your personal computer. But now <laughs> the advice might be just the opposite. If you want to search something very sensitive and you are worried about this, uh, I would say go to a library or some other place to use the computer. Or there use are like also some, a couple of Yeah, I was going to uh, say you could do an, an anonymizer, you know, do yes, some searching. there are anonymizers and there are search softwares that will give you the same searches but will not preserve a copy of, uh, of what you've searched for. And now there's a competing Microsoft product called Bing, and I think they keep the information for six months instead of uh, a year and a half. I know. So there are alternatives. Yeah, they definitely are. When we talk about um, the other dangers on the Internet, we, we I think of the social networking. And I, I may be old-timer, but I'm scared to do these things. I'm scared of Facebook to, to get involved in it or LinkedIn. I 
I guess I'm just old-fashioned, but I see a lot of the terrible things that happen to people who call me. So what should we be telling young people who are so excited about using all this social networking like Facebook, MySpace, Twitter? What about it? What are your thoughts? Well, they have to know what they're dealing with. My understanding is on Facebook it's impossible to uh, take down information once you put it up. That's that's really important. It, it, they should check Facebook for exactly what kind of information is going to be available to everybody and what is going to be available only to their friends. But, of course, once their friends have access to it, they can pass it on to others. So uh, I think they should know that information on Facebook is not shared only within the family. It's, it's, it's widely distributed. It's impossible to delete, and it's impossible, I think, to really close down a Facebook site once you start it up. So people ought to, and, of course, it is said, and I believe it's true, that college admissions officers and employment uh, officers do uh, uh, go to Facebook to see if there are stupid pictures of people there uh, and people in compromising positions. And that doesn't make any sense to me at all, even if you're very young. Why, why put up an image of yourself that makes you look stupid? So I, I, I think at most put up a portrait of yourself, but uh, any party pictures, people taking pictures at a party, I would avoid it. I would tell them, turn your back and say no, uh, because that information can get on Facebook that night, and uh, people just don't need that. <laughs> uh, so uh, they should be discreet. And, and I know if you're a teenager, it's hard to believe that 20 years from now any of that information will haunt you, but it, it will. And uh, I try to tell my kids, keep your options open. And putting a lot of stupid pictures and information on Facebook is not keeping your options open. Exactly. And then we hear about sexting, you know, where people are taking pictures of themselves on their cell phone, you know, in the nude and sending it to a friend. So, you know, I mean, people just think that something is going to be private, and it is not private once it's out there in the electronic age, right? Yes, and we also have very strict and strong uh, federal law on, on distributing and, and possessing uh, images of children that are nude and sexually suggestive. And that law applies to somebody doing it about themselves. So to the extent that you are not 18 years of, old, of age and you're distributing a sexually uh, arousing image of even yourself, that would violate that law. And uh, if you are caught, and even if the charges are are negotiated, you still might end up on some sex offender list, and that is something you don't need. So uh, I just wanted to caution uh, people about that. Absolutely. What about Twitter? I know even Beth Givens from the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse is, is you know, on Twitter now. So how do you feel about Twitter? Well, I, I don't know much about it. I, I, I'm still waiting to see how it's going to enhance me. I don't think I need it personally. Uh, I'm told that it would enhance my business. Uh, I don't know about that until I'm persuaded. I guess I, I won't uh, use it. I, 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 the, the only privacy problems with it is that people may disclose their whereabouts and what they're doing when they really don't want to. Uh, and that's about the only thing. I, I think the problem with Twitter might be that it's a waste of time more than a threat to privacy, but I'm not the most experienced person on that. Yeah, I don't have time to do it. I'm just going to ask <laughs> Beth what she thinks. You know, who has the time? Uh, that's the way I feel. <laughs> what about, we, we don't have a real lot of time, but we can, we can talk for a couple of minutes about this what about radio, radio frequency identifier technology? Yeah, RFID. These are, uh, are uh, little tiny little chips, size of half, half the size of a piece of rice that can be implanted in, in clothing and other products to keep track of uh, the raw materials and the point of sale and where they're sold and what the price is and all the rest and the shipping. They're, they're pretty handy, but they are made for inanimate objects. The trouble is a lot of people want to use them to keep track of people, and that's wrong. They want to use them on school pupils, uh, require that they put it either they're in their lunch boxes or there are a few people that have them implanted in their within their skin, too, and uh, people ought to be really cautious of that. We don't need uh, a tiny little transmitter in our bodies, uh, even if we think it will be of value to us. But if you're worried about your kids or you're worried about a relative who might have uh, Alzheimer's or something like that, Get a bracelet that's external to the body, some one that you can change your mind about and get rid of if you wish. But uh, try to avoid RFID chips uh, implanted in human beings. Right. I mean, I do have one in my dog, but that's because I can't put a bracelet on him. I guess I guess I yeah, can I have it in his collar. There are a lot of implants for dogs in, uh, throughout the country. Yeah. 
I know. I mean, my dog is eight years old now, and he had it since he's eight weeks old. And, uh, you know, and I thought, well, that would be good if he ran away. Or if somebody found him, they'd be able to find out, you know, who he is because he can't talk. But, um, you know, I mean, I understand if you have a family member who has Alzheimer's to maybe have them wear, like you said, a bracelet or something like that that you could have on them. So there are there is the good uses. It's always the dark side and the light side, isn't it, Robert? Isn't that true? Yeah. I mean, a lot of this technology can be used favorably, but a lot can't. Yeah. Well, tell us real quickly about your privacy books and your favorite privacy books, and then we're going to have to go. Yeah, thanks. Well, my favorite book is Ben Franklin's website, which I think is a great starting point for people, and they can find information on our website. That's uh, privacyjournal.net, or send an inquiry to orders at privacyjournal.net. And we publish a monthly newsletter. We have a a big discount uh, for individuals, so don't get scared by the price if you see it on uh, our website. Um, And we publish other books that give people information. We have a special report on Social Security numbers and a report on Choice Point and uh, a national ID card, as as you mentioned. So uh, also go to our website, take a look at our privacy tips, and let me know if you have better ones. I'm sure people do. Right. So just one last question here. Um, What are your suggestions for what should happen legislatively to protect our privacy in the future? You got any ideas? Well, I think in in the employment area, that's really important. Yeah, I think people ought to have a right to uh, see and correct their own employment records, and maybe there ought to be some uh, limits on disclosure of employment records. Uh, California does have a right of access to employment records, but most states uh, do not. And uh, I I think that uh, there ought to be uh, guidelines on uh, television uh, monitoring, both in employment and, and in the public streets, some rules and regulations that along the lines of what I described before. There's also an important treaty in Europe that uh, gives recognition to privacy as a human right, and uh, it's about time the United States ratified that, I think. uh, There's a big effort now by a group called EPIC in Washington that will be trying to get uh, the United States to ratify that treaty to recognize privacy as uh, not just a pain in the neck, but a basic human right worldwide. And that's EPIC is the Electronic Privacy Information Center. And if you want to know more about that, you can go to epic.org and learn about it yourself. Right. So I want to thank you so much. You are always so full with really important information for us, great ideas to share, good, good information, and we will have you back again. We thank you so much, Robert Ellis Smith. Thanks. Keep up your good work. Okay. Good talk to, talk you to you soon. Yeah, talk to you soon, Bob. Okay, you've been listening to KUCI. FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank, your host. Join us every Monday from 8 to 9 a.m. and visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. See our upcoming guests, download podcasts, and listen to archived interviews as well. And please write us emails about what you're worried about, what concerns you have about privacy in the information age. Thank you. Bye. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. Frank, host of Privacy Piracy, which airs every Monday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. right here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm also pleased to present the weekly segment of Orange County Sheriff News and Safety Tips. And today we are welcoming Sanford Otsuji, who is Chief Senior Chaplain with the Orange County Sheriff's Department. And he's been with the department as a volunteer for 10 years. In his professional life, he is the executive director of the foundation Olive Crest, which provides homes and services for abused children. Thank you, Sandy, for joining us. Thank you, Mari, for having me. Why don't you tell us what the chaplain program at the Orange County Sheriff's Department is really about? Well, first of all, the chaplain program started 23 years ago in Orange County and actually in San Clemente and has branched out throughout Orange County uh, with the Sheriff's Department. And... The chaplains are primarily ministers who are ordained or they're licensed or commissioned 
and they supply spiritual help and partnership with the deputies as they ride along with them and are called when they need it in the crisis situation. And what is your role as the senior chaplain? My role is to oversee the program, which has 25 chaplains that serve all of the cities in the sheriff's department's area, and that is throughout Orange County. We're going to talk more about this program and specifically what you all do as chaplains very soon in our next segment. So thank you for joining us. Bye-bye. 